I got to tell you, next time I'm having a bad day, I'm putting that song with Arthur singing <laughs> on, on my sound system. Feeling groovy. I hope you're feeling groovy now. <clears throat> How many of you seen the movie Wedding Crashers? Some of you seen it before? At the beginning of the movie, Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn are in a church service, in a wedding service, a wedding ceremony. They're about the fourth or fifth row back. And the preacher and his, the pastor in his best spiritual voice says, and now we'll have a reading from the lectern by the bride's sister. And Owen Wilson whispers to Vince Vaughn, 20 bucks, 1 Corinthians. <laughs> and Vince re replies, double or nothing, Colossians 3.12. <laughs> Which one was it? It was 1 Corinthians, the text you heard read just a moment ago. Love, love, is, love is patient. Love is kind. If you're, gonna, if you're at a wedding and you're going to take a, a bet on what's going to be read, go with 1 Corinthians every time. Trust me, it's the safe bet. Plus, if you win, I expect to see a little bit extra in the offering plate the next day. <laughs> just, so, just so we're clear. 1 Corinthians 13 being read at a, at a wedding almost feels cliche though, doesn't it? I can tell when I'm the one doing the reading, I can hear the eyeballs rolling back in their, in their heads. I can hear people not paying attention. Oh, here we go. Love is patient. Love is kind. It never ends. It's cliche, yes, but actually I like, I like it when a couple chooses that, that text because it's a fun one to preach. It's simple. It's clear. And there's some power in between those lines. I've also noticed lately, last few years, more and more people are having it read at funerals and memorial services, especially when it's a, in memory of one who lived a long and loving life. There's something poignantly powerful about hearing those promises about what love is, and especially when we get to that last phrase, love never ends. Paul wrote this letter, though, not for weddings or funerals, he wrote it to a church in crisis. The church was divided in a variety of ways. There were factions and issues and groups and ang angry confrontations and, and frankly, worse. One, one of the issues, he notes this earlier in the, in the letter, I think about the fifth chapter or so, that there's a young adult man who is involved in an intimate relationship with his stepmother, his father's second wife. Later, Paul gets into to an issue in the church of the poor being humiliated by those with power and influence in the faith community. What would happen when they would gather for the Lord's Supper on Sundays? It wasn't like one we do. It was more than just a little bit of bread and, and, and wine. It was a, a full meal, an agape feast that they used, to, they used to call it, where there would be bread and wine and fruits and vegetables and more for the community to share. But those with the most power, those with the most ability, and we're talking about the, the top 10%, in antiquity, there was no middle class, virtually everyone else was struggling. Well, those top 10% would come and they'd pick the best of the food, sometimes eat most of it, and leave nothing or little or nothing for those who were the weakest, those who were the ones with the least power in their church and their community. And, and Paul writes this letter because he, he's confronting them with the, the way they're behaving. There are other things that, that come up throughout the letter, but those are the two primary ones. And then he gets to chapter 13 in his letter, and this is when he decides to use love as his argument. Love, he writes, is patient. Love is kind. Now in that context, hear him preaching. I, I hear his voice rising. Love is not arrogant, rude, boastful, or envious. Now we know some of the issues in the Corinth church. 
You see, it was written to a church in crisis. He wanted them to bring them back to their foundation, back to the teachings of Jesus, back to the one who taught them that the greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor. It's more than a cliche. It's a beautiful text that can bring the church back to the center of who we're called to be. Well, back in April, uh, I was before I went on sabbatical, I was working on this sermon series. I decided which four songs were, were going to be sung, including Feeling Groovy, and I kind of got stuck. I wasn't really coming up with any ideas or, or verses that I might use to underscore the, the, the songs themselves, and so I just kind of put my notes to the side. I was over here at South in my office, uh, and I reached over to my bookshelf and pulled out my favorite Bible. I have about 30 Bibles. Yes, it's a Bible nerd thing, and I know you can get it online too, but opened up the Bible, and I just, I did something that sounds like a cliche or a preacher cliche as well. I just started flipping through, looking to see if anything popped out. I read a few verses in Genesis, which is some of my favorite Psalms, including uh, uh, Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, O God. I got to Isaiah, and especially that text where he says, those who wait will, will soar with, with, with eagles eventually. Some beautiful texts. I, then I just, nothing was clicking. So I flipped it open to the New Testament, and it fell open right there at 1 Corinthians 13. I kind of laughed. I went ahead and read it, and I got to verse 4. It's where we began today's reading. Love is patient. And I thought, that's perfect to pair with slow down, you move too fast. Got to make the morning last. Love is patient. The best relationships I've seen among couples are the ones who are patient with each other. Some of the most difficult ones are those where patience has been lost and there's no room to wait to be. There's a rush and a hurry. Love is patient. Slow down, you move too fast. My wife Julie will say to me often, when we've been moving and going and, and, and coming and doing this and doing that and filling our lives with lots of busyness, she'll say, you know what, we just need a day to be a day where there's no assignments, where there's no television, there's, there's no worrying about the world, we don't we'll get caught up in politics, you won't worry about your favorite baseball team, who's lost four in a row, by the way, in case you're curious. <laughs> None of that will just be. And she can tell, too, when I'm cramming in too much in my professional life. She can tell when I'm caught up in way too much stuff, angsting over this and angsting over that, because it affects our relationship with each other, and it affects my relationship with my sons, both of whom are adults living now in Kansas City, and still, even from a distance, they can tell. Dad, I got a text from my son one night saying, what's going on? They can tell. Sometimes we just need a moment to just be, to make space for the relationship itself to fill in that space with patience, patience and, and love. I read this week a, a story about a man named Ephraim Smith. He, he was a, a youth minister at a large downtown Minneapolis church, a church that remained downtown, specifically decided to stay downtown when other churches were fleeing out to the suburbs because they wanted to minister to the folks there. And that can be a tough ministry, but they decided to stay. And his youth ministry thrived. Young people from all over the city were coming downtown to be a part of this, this church's youth ministry. There was excitement and energy, and he became a very good speaker. In fact, he became in, uh, was invited to speak at various youth conferences around the country. At this particular one where he was speaking, he says, in his own voice, he says, I arrived at the conference where hundreds and hundreds of kids would be there, worn out, burnt out, 
tired, needing some time off. Nonetheless, he says, he went in and gave one of his best youth talks that he'd, he'd written and prepared. Hundreds of kids were there. It went very well. And at the end, he said, now, we want you to know that if you're interested in being involved in a revolution of love, a revolution of grace, if you want to be some of the young adults that we, that we bring together to help us get this revolutionary word of God's love and grace given for everyone, if you feel so moved, we would love for you young people to come and join us here on the, on the stage. There are some other youth leaders who are here with us. We'll get your information, we'll pray with you, and we'll, we'll start what we believe is going to be a revolution of love and grace. He gets to the end of his talk, he makes that invitation, and sure enough, dozens and dozens of kids come up on the stage. He's got youth leaders prepared, and they're gathering information, handing out cards, getting them to fill out. Then they have little prayers with, with little small groups to send them back on their way. Ephraim's pretty tired, though, and he's beginning to, to long to be in his hotel room to just get away from the hustle and the bustle and the rush. He knows he's worn out. And yet, in the middle of one of these prayer groups, a young girl, 16 or 17 years old, pops up in the middle of it and says, my name is Crystal, and I need more prayer. Well, Ephraim's a good youth worker, so he went over to Crystal and brought, brought a couple others uh, with, with him to, to pray for her, and the three of them prayed. And then she said, amen, and then she started praying. And then she stopped praying and said, amen, and then she said, no, but you pray some more now. And Ephraim kind of looked at his youth minister buddies and looked at his watch and said, <laughs> and, they, and they, kept, they kept praying. Finally, Crystal said, thank you. And she went off to go pray with some other, other groups. Ephraim quietly walked off the stage and made his way, started to make his way toward the back of the room and across the, the alley, as it were, to his hotel room. When Crystal saw him, she said, wait, stop. I need to pray with you now. She ran down the steps, ran down the aisle, put her hand on his shoulder, and she said, dear God, Please help Ephraim to spend more time with his family and more time with you. Please help Ephraim to, to not rely so much on his gifts, but to rely on yours. He said it was like a prophetic earthquake. She spoke the truth. Somehow she knew. How she knew? I don't know. Intuitively, she knew that he needed more time with his family, more time with God, less time relying on his own abilities to prove how good he is to the world. There's a couple of reasons why I told you that story this morning. It, it fits with the slow down, you move too fast. It works with love is patient. But it also makes me uncomfortable. That's not the way I function. I don't like to do spontaneous prayer with a bunch of kids up on, us, on the stage. I don't want somebody coming and grabbing me and saying, I need to pray for you. That doesn't, it, theologically it feels awkward, it feels unusual, but I gotta tell you, I'm pretty sure I needed to encounter that story this week. And I'm sharing it with you for another reason, because I'm pretty sure that's not the ordinary way we work. I've not seen Mary Kate or Tim once run you down in the hallway and say, come here, I gotta pray for you, or create little ad hoc groups. But maybe, maybe, sometimes we need to get out of our ordinary patterns and expect something extraordinary to happen. Maybe we need to get out of our comfortable chairs and pews and make room for the very spirit, the very presence of God to find its way into our space, to find its way into our hearts, minds, souls. Maybe that's what it means to slow down, to be patient in love, to make room for the other and for the holy. 
You know, when Paul Simon wrote this cute little song, Feeling Groovy, he was in a terrible dark time in his life. It sounds strange to say that because he had just been, uh, had a number one hit, The Sounds of Silence. That's coming up in a couple of weeks in this sermon series. He was known around the world. He was becoming a superstar. He couldn't go anywhere where he wasn't recognized. Everywhere he went, he was recognized, and it put him into a, in a, in a, a, a dark depression. He felt like there was a cloud just hovering over him all the time. He just wanted to get away and, and escape. He didn't use this phrase, but he's describing what I've heard other people in show business say, that there's something called an imposter syndrome. They expect so much of me, I'll never be able to live up to what their expectations are. You get a couple of preachers to be open and honest, we'll tell you too, same thing. That imposter syndrome is real. He didn't know what to do. He's in his mid-20s and already he's a success and it's overwhelming him. Until one morning, it's early, 6 a.m., he's out in New York City on the 59th Street Bridge when he thinks to himself, oh, this is a beautiful day. I wish I could make the morning last. And it comes to him, ah, he hustles back to his apartment, he pens the words to this song, puts the little tune together, and the next thing you know, his whole mindset has changed and shifted. Here's a fascinating thing. I've found several interviews with him, recent ones, where he hates that song. <laughs> it's his least favorite song. When people requested it at a concert, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. He even went on the Stephen Colbert show and made fun of it publicly. But in that moment, I'm going to use a theological word here. In that moment, it was for him salvific. It was a saving moment. It was a moment that allowed him to see beyond the clouds that had metaphorically gathered around him, to see the shining light of grace itself. I'm reading a book called When Church Stops Working. It's written by a couple of, of authors with PhDs from Princeton. I saw some reviews on it on different websites that I, that I read on a regular basis about theological books and works and so on, and thought I should, I should probably check it out. I only know two people with, with a degree from uh, Princeton. One of them is Mary Kate. So I thought, eh, maybe this is a pretty good chance. I'll, I'll check out this book. And it irritated me at first. And it's still kind of irritating me. But here's their premise. They believe the church in the United States is in crisis. They're not talking the liberal progressive church, one like us. They're not talking about fundamentalist churches. They're not talking about evangelical churches or moderate churches. They're talking about the church in the United States is in crisis. The crisis is not too few people. The crisis is not too few dollars. The crisis is not too little influence. Those things are real for many churches, but that's not the crisis. This is where they irritated me. The crisis is the church has become too secular. And I thought to myself, okay, are we really going to say that this is it? We need more prayer. We need to sing more hymns. Or we need to do the right kind of things in worship. Is that what they're going for? Actually, it's not. They're, they have no problem with secularity. There's much we can learn from, from, from the, the culture. But what they noticed in their research, as they read through a number of books on how to make your church thrive, written by consultants and church growth experts and those kind of folks from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and the 2000s, they constantly said the church needs to be more innovative. You need to be more innovative. You need to be more innovative. Again, not a bad thing. But what they discovered was, first of all, the church has been in massive decline since the 70s. Many churches have been in serious decline, losing dollars, lo losing members, losing influence. 
what they see is the church needs to learn to wait. To wait for God. To make space for God's presence. To slow down because we move too fast. To not keep piling on this and that and that and and more. But to take a breath. To make space for the presence of God. And then they tell a story. It comes from January 27th, 1956. Martin Luther King has been tabbed by the church leaders in Montgomery, Alabama to lead a bus boycott. He's in, his, he's in his 20s, but already he's becoming an influential pastor, an influential voice in the state there and beginning to be heard around the, around the country. But he's failing. He's upset and he's frustrated. People aren't doing enough. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough people. We don't have enough potential. We've we got great potential. We don't have enough people following up on their own potential. Things aren't going well. He's very angry when the phone rings. It's late at night. His infant daughter asleep in a room over here, not far away. His wife asleep in their room. He picks up the phone. There's a racial slur on the other end. You can guess. And then the voice says, we don't like the mess you're stirring up. We're going to blow up your house and we're going to blow up your brains. Slam. Now, he'd received death threats before. They never bothered him. Maybe it was because of his young family nearby, the daughter just born. Maybe it was due to the failures he was experiencing the inability to get this boycott organized, to get more people involved, he sat down at his kitchen table and he confessed to God his failure. He confessed his fear. He confessed his his lack of courage. He acknowledged that he didn't know what to do next. And then he waited. And he waited. And a voice, King says he believes it was the voice of God, came to him. And the voice said, where there is no way, I'll make a way. Where there is no way, I'll make a way. Where there is no way, I'll make a way. And that became for King what the authors of the book, When Church Stops Working, call a watchword. Now, they had a mission statement. You need a mission statement. They were clear. We want to fight for for racial equity and justice. They were very clear. They had a plan on how they were going to do all that. That's important. That matters. But they needed a watchword. They needed a word, a phrase that could describe who they are, where their faith is in, where their trust is located, where there is no way, I'll make a way. And then what did they do? They waited. They waited in the front seats of the buses they were told before they couldn't sit in. Even after they were dragged away and taken off and arrested, more came and waited in those seats. They waited at the, at the counters, in the diners, where they were told, people like you are not allowed to sit here. But they waited until they were dragged away and arrested again, and more came, and they waited. They waited their way into action. And the movement took shape. And the movement was born. Slow down. You move too fast. That word became a salvific one for Paul Simon. Love is patient, Paul wrote to a church in crisis. Love makes space for the relationship with the other and the holy to form and grow. Where there is no way, God will make a way. 
I'll close with this. In 2015, I was completing my term as the moderator of the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. That's one of the two denominations that we are affiliated with as, as a church. Uh, the moderator's role is to be the chair of the board and then to moderate the assembly uh, that, that happens every two years. Well, that assembly happened to be here in, in, in Columbus, over at downtown at the convention center. In fact, I, I don't even, I'm careful about asking this question. I preached here on the Sunday of that general assembly here at First Community, in, at First Community South. Does anybody remember? Uh, a couple, one hand, God bless you, lunch is on me, okay? <laughs> it was a fun day. As part of the General Assembly uh, moderator, my role was to work with the planning team to bring in speakers. And we, we brought in my buddy Adam Hamilton, the pastor of the 25,000-member church in, in Kansas City, as the closing preacher. He gave a 40-minute sermon. Next time I'm getting to 21 or 22 like I am right now, just remember, my buddy Adam, he goes 40 minutes every week. <laughs> and, but know this as well. I've heard 10-minute sermons that were too long, and 40-minute sermons that were too short. At the end of that sermon, that great sermon that could have gone on longer as far as I was concerned, he invited us to pray. My wife Julie and I were sitting right on the front row, 4,000 people at the convention center. It had been a powerful, amazing sermon, but he invited us to pray a very simple prayer to repeat after him. Dear Jesus, we repeated, help me to make space for you, to make space for your grace, to make space for your love. We repeated each of the phrases. And give me the courage I need to let your love and grace flow through me. I don't know what it was about the moment. Maybe the Spirit was actually there because Julie and I openly wept wanting to make space. Slow down. You move too fast. Love is patient. Where there's no way, God will make a way. In the name of the one who loves us all. Amen.